Section 22 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 13, Part 3. 22. It were tedious, and to no purpose toilsome, to form a catalogue of the errors by which, in regard to this branch of doctrine, the purity of the faith has been assailed. The greater part of heretics have, with their gross deliriums, made a general attack on the glory of God, deeming it enough if they could disturb and shake the unwary. From a few individuals numerous sects have sprung up, some of them rending the divine essence, and others confounding the distinction of persons. But if we hold what has already been demonstrated from Scripture, that the essence of the one God, pertaining to the Father, Son, and Spirit, is simple and indivisible, and again that the Father differs in some special property from the Son, and the Son from the Spirit, the door will be shut against Arius and Sibelius, as well as the other ancient authors of error. But as in our day have arisen certain frantic men, such as Servetus and others, who, by new devices, have thrown everything into confusion, it may be worth while to briefly discuss their fallacies. The name of Trinity was so much disliked, nay detested, by Servetus, that he charged all whom he called Trinitarians with being atheists. I say nothing of the insulting terms in which he thought proper to make his charges. The sum of his speculations was, that a threefold deity is introduced wherever three persons are said to exist in his essence, and that this triad was imaginary, inasmuch as it was inconsistent with the unity of God. At the same time he would have it that the persons are certain external ideas which do not truly subsist in the divine essence, but only figure God to us under this or that form, that at first, indeed, there was no distinction in God, because originally the word was the same as the spirit, but ever since Christ came forth God of God, another spirit, also a God, had proceeded from him. But although he sometimes cloaks his absurdities in allegory, as when he says that the eternal word of God was the spirit of Christ with God, and the reflection of the idea, likewise, that the spirit was a shadow of deity, he at last reduces the divinity of both to nothing maintaining that, according to the mode of distribution, there is a part of God as well in the Son as in the Spirit, just as the same Spirit substantially is a portion of God in us, and also in wood and stone. His absurd babbling concerning the person of the Mediator will be seen in its own place. The monstrous fiction that a person is nothing else than a visible appearance of the glory of God needs not a long refutation. For when John declares that before the world was created, the Logos was God, John 1, 1, he shows that he was something very different from an idea. But if even then, and from the remotest eternity, that Logos, who was God, was with the Father, and had his own distinct and peculiar glory with the Father, John 17, 5, he certainly could not be an external or figurative splendor, but most necessarily have been a hypostasis, which dwelt inherently in God himself. But although there is no mention made of the spirit antecedent to the account of the creation, he is not there introduced as a shadow, but as the essential power of God, 
where Moses relates that the shapeless mass was unborn by him, Genesis 1-2. It is obvious that the eternal spirit always existed in God, seeing he cherished and sustained the confused materials of heaven and earth before they possessed order or beauty. Assuredly, he could not then be an image or representation of God, as Servetus dreams, but he is elsewhere forced to make a more open disclosure of his impiety when he says that God by his eternal reason decreeing a son to himself, in this way assumed a visible appearance. For if this be true, no other divinity is left to Christ than is implied in his having been ordained a son by God's eternal decree. Moreover, those phantoms which Servetus substitutes for the hypostases, he so transforms as to make new changes in God. But the most execrable heresy of all is his confounding both the Son and Spirit promiscuously with all the creatures. For he distinctly asserts that there are parts and partitions in the essence of God, and that every such portion is God. This he does especially when he says, that the spirits of the faithful are co-eternal and consubstantial with God, although he elsewhere assigns a substantial divinity, not only to the soul of men, but to all created things. 23. This pool has bred another monster not unlike the former. For certain restless spirits, unwilling to share the disgrace and obloquy of the impiety of Servetus, have confessed that there were indeed three persons, but added, as a reason, that the Father, who alone is truly and properly God, transfused his divinity into the Son and Spirit when he formed them. Nor do they refrain from expressing themselves in such shocking terms as these, that the Father is essentially distinguished from the Son and Spirit by this, that he is the only essentiator. Their first pretext for this is, that Christ is uniformly called the Son of God. From this they infer that there is no proper God but the Father. But they forget that although the name of God is common also to the Son, yet it is sometimes, by way of excellence, ascribed to the Father, as being the source and principle of divinity. And this is done in order to mark the simple unity of essence. They object that if the Son is truly God, he must be deemed the Son of a person, which is absurd. I answer that both are true namely, that he is the Son of God, because he is the Word begotten of the Father before all ages, for we are not now speaking of the person of the Mediator, and yet that for the purpose of explanation, regard must be had to the person, so that the name of God may not be understood in its absolute sense, but as equivalent to Father. For if we hold that there is no other God than the Father's, this rank is clearly denied to the Son. In every case where the Godhead is mentioned, we are by no means to admit that there is an antithesis between the Father and the Son, as if to the former only the name of God could competently be applied. For assuredly, the God who appeared to Isaiah was the one true God, and yet John declares that he was Christ. Isaiah 6, John 12, 41. He who declared by the mouth of Isaiah that he was to be for a stone of stumbling to the Jews was the one God. And yet Paul declares that he was Christ, Isaiah 8.14, Romans 9.33. He who proclaims by Isaiah, unto me every knee shall bow, is the one God. Yet Paul again explains that he is Christ, Isaiah 45.23, Romans 14.11.
To this we may add the passages quoted by an apostle, Thou, Lord, hast laid the foundations of the earth. Let all the angels of God worship him, Hebrews 1, 10, 10, 6, Psalm 102, 26, and 97, 7. All these apply to the one God, and yet the apostle contends that they are the proper attributes of Christ. There is nothing in the cavil that what properly applies to God is transferred to Christ, because he is the brightness of his glory. Since the name of Jehovah is everywhere applied to Christ, it follows that, in regard to deity, he is of himself. For if he is Jehovah, it is impossible to deny that he is the same God who elsewhere proclaims by Isaiah, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 44, 6. We would also do well to ponder the words of Jeremiah, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Jeremiah 10.11 Whence it follows conversely, that he whose divinity Isaiah repeatedly proves from the creation of the world, is none other than the Son of God. And how is it possible that the Creator, who gives to all, should not be of himself, but should borrow his essence from another? Whosoever says that the Son is essentiated by the Father, denies his self-existence. Against this, however, the Holy Spirit protests, when he calls him Jehovah. On the supposition, then, that the whole essence is in the Father only, the essence becomes divisible, or is denied to the Son, who, being thus robbed of his essences, will only be a titular God. If we are to believe these triflers, divine essence belongs to the Father only, on the ground that he is sole God, and essentiator of the Son. In this way, the divinity of the Son will be something abstracted from the essence of God, or the derivation of a part from the whole. On the same principle it must also be conceded that the Spirit belongs to the Father only. For if the derivation is from the primary essence, which is proper to none but the Father, the Spirit cannot justly be deemed the Spirit of the Son. This view, however, is refuted by the testimony of Paul, when he makes the Spirit common to both Christ and the Father. Moreover, if the person of the Father is expunged from the Trinity, in what will he differ from the Son and Spirit, except in being the only God? They confess that Christ is God, and that he differs from the Father. If he differs, there must be some mark of distinction between them. Those who place it in the essence manifestly reduce the true divinity of Christ to nothing, since divinity cannot exist without essence, and indeed without entire essence. The Father certainly cannot differ from the Son, unless he have something peculiar to himself, and not common to him with the Son. What, then, do these men show as the mark of distinction? If it is in the essence, let them tell whether or not he communicated essence to the Son. This he could not do in part merely, for it were impious to think of a divided God. And besides, on this supposition, there would be a rending of the divine essence. The whole entire essence must therefore be common to the Father and the Son. And if so, in respect of essence there is no distinction between them. If they reply that the Father, while essentiating, still remains the only God, being the possessor of the essence, then Christ will be a figurative God, one in name or semblance only, and not in reality, because no property can be more peculiar to God than essence, according to the words, 
I am hath sent me unto you. Exodus 3, 4. 24. The assumption, that whenever God is mentioned absolutely, the Father only is meant, may be proved erroneous by many passages. Even in those which they quote in support of their views, they betray a lamentable inconsistency, because the name of Son occurs there by way of contrast, showing that the other name God is used relatively, and in that way confined to the person of the Father. Their objection may be disposed of in a single word. Were not the Father alone the true God, he would, they say, be his own Father. But there is nothing absurd in the name of God being specially applied, in respect of order and degree, to him who not only of himself begat his own wisdom, but is the God of the Mediator, as I will more fully show in its own place. For ever since Christ was manifested in the flesh, he is called the Son of God, not only because begotten of the Father before all worlds he was the eternal word, but because he undertook the person and office of the Mediator, that he might unite us to God. Seeing they are so bold in excluding the Son from the honor of God, I would fain know whether, when he declares that there is none good but one, that is, God, he deprives himself of goodness. I speak not of his human nature, lest perhaps they should object that whatever goodness was in it was derived by gratuitous gift. I ask whether the eternal word of God is good, yes or no. If they say no, their impiety is manifest. If yes, they refute themselves. Christ's seeming at the first glance to disclaim the name of good, Matthew 19.17, rather confirms our view. Goodness, being the special property of God alone, and yet being at the time applied to him in the ordinary way of salutation, his rejection of false honor intimates that the goodness in which he excels is divine. Again I ask whether, when Paul affirms that God alone is immortal, wise, and true, 1 Timothy 1.17, he reduces Christ to the rank of beings mortal, foolish, and false. Is not he immortal, who, from the beginning, had life as to bestow immortality on angels? Is not he wise, who is the eternal wisdom of God? Is not he true, who is truth itself? I ask, moreover, whether they think Christ should be worshipped. If he claims justly that every knee shall bow to him, it follows that he is the God who, in the law, forbade worship to be offered to any but himself. If they insist on applying to the Father only the words of Isaiah, I am, and besides me there is none else, Isaiah 44, 6, I turn the passage against themselves, since we see that every property of God is attributed to Christ. There is no room for the cavil that Christ was exalted in the flesh in which he humbled himself, and in respect of which all power is given to him in heaven and on earth. For although the majesty of king and judge extends to the whole person of the mediator, yet had he not been God manifested in the flesh, he could not have been exalted to such a height without coming into collision with God. And the dispute is admirably settled by Paul, when he declares that he was equal with God before he humbled himself and assumed the form of a servant. Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Moreover, how could such equality exist if he were not that God whose name is Yah and Jehovah, who rides upon the cherubim, is king of all the earth, and king of ages? Let them glamour as they may, Christ cannot be robbed of the honour described by Isaiah, 
Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him. Isaiah 25, 9. For these words describe the advent of God the Redeemer, who is not only to bring back the people from Babylonish captivity, but restore the church and make her completely perfect. Nor does another cavil avail them that Christ was God in his Father. For though we admit that, in respect of order and gradation, the beginning of divinity is in the Father, we hold it a detestable fiction to maintain that essence is proper to the Father alone, as if he were the deifier of the Son. On this view either the essence is manifold, or Christ is God only in name and imagination. If they grant that the Son is God, but only in subordination to the Father, the essence which in the Father is unformed and unbegotten will in him be formed and begotten. I know that many who would be thought wise deride us for extracting the distinction of persons from the words of Moses when he introduces God as saying, Let us make man in our own image, Genesis 1.26. Pious readers, however, see how frigidly and absurdly the colloquy were introduced by Moses if there were not several persons in the Godhead. It is certain that those whom the Father addresses must have been untreated. But nothing is untreated except the one God. Now then, unless they concede that the power of creating was common to the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the power of commanding common, it will follow that God did not speak thus inwardly with himself, but addressed other extraneous architects. In fine, there is a single passage which will at once dispose of these two objections. The declaration of Christ that God is a Spirit, John 4.24, cannot be confined to the Father only, as if the word were not of a spiritual nature. But if the name spirit applies equally to the Son as to the Father, I infer that under the indefinite name of God the Son is included. He adds immediately after that the only worshippers approved by the Father are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And hence I also infer that because Christ performs the office of teacher under a head, he applies the name God to the Father, not for the purpose of destroying his own divinity, but for the purpose of raising us up to it, as it were, step by step. 25. The hallucination consists in dreaming of individuals, each of whom possesses a part of the essence. The scriptures teach that there is essentially but one God, and, therefore, that the essence both of the Son and the Spirit is unbegotten. But inasmuch as the Father is first in order, and of himself begat his own wisdom, he, as we lately observed, is justly regarded as the principle and fountain of all the Godhead. Thus God, taken indefinitely, is unbegotten, and the Father, in respect of his person, is unbegotten. For it is absurd to imagine that our doctrine gives any ground for alleging that we establish a quaternion of gods. They falsely and calumniously ascribe to us the figment of their own brain, as if we virtually held that three persons emanate from one essence, whereas it is plain from our writings that we do not disjoin the persons from the essence, but interpose a distinction between the persons residing in it. If the persons were separated from the essence, there might be some plausibility in their argument, as in this way there would be a trinity of gods, not of persons comprehended in one God. This affords an answer to their futile question, whether or not the essence concurs in forming the trinity, as if we imagined that three gods were derived from it. 
their objection that there would thus be a trinity without a God originates in the same absurdity. Although the essence does not contribute to the distinction as if it were a part or member, the persons are not without it or external to it. For the Father, if he were not God, could not be the Father, nor could the Son possibly be Son unless he were God. We say, then, that the Godhead is absolutely of itself. And hence, also, we hold that the Son, regarded as God, and without reference to person, is also of himself. Though we also say that, regarded as Son, he is of the Father. Thus his essence is without beginning, while his person has its beginning in God. And, indeed, the orthodox writers who in former times spoke of the Trinity used this term only with reference to the persons. To have included the essence in the distinction would not only have been an absurd error, but gross impiety. For those who class the three thus, essence, son, and spirit, plainly do away with the essence of the son and spirit. Otherwise the parts being intermingled would merge into each other, a circumstance which would vitiate any distinction. In short, if God and Father were synonymous terms, the Father would be deifier in a sense which would leave the Son nothing but a shadow, and the Trinity would be nothing more than the union of one God with two creatures. 26. To the objection that if Christ be properly God, he is improperly called the Son of God, it has been already answered that when one person is compared with another, the name God is not used indefinitely, but is restricted to the Father, regarded as the beginning of the Godhead, not by essentiating, as fanatics absurdly express it, but in respect of order. In this sense are to be understood the words which Christ addressed to the Father, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17.3 For speaking in the person of the Mediator, he holds a middle place between God and man, yet so that his majesty is not diminished thereby. For though he humbled, emptied himself, he did not lose the glory which he had with the Father, though it was concealed from the world. So in the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 1.10 and 2.9, though the apostle confesses that Christ was made a little lower than the angels, he at the same time hesitates not to assert that he is the eternal God who founded the earth. We must hold, therefore, that as often as Christ, in the character of mediator, addresses the Father, he, under the term God, includes his own divinity also. Thus, when he says to the apostles, It is expedient for you that I go away, my Father is greater than I, he does not attribute to himself a secondary divinity merely, as if in regard to eternal essence he were inferior to the Father. But having obtained celestial glory, he gathers together the faithful to share it with him. He places the Father in the higher degree, inasmuch as the full perfection of brightness conspicuous in heaven differs from that measure of glory which he himself displayed when clothed in flesh. For the same reason Paul says that Christ will restore the kingdom to God, even the Father, that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15.24 and 28. Nothing can be more absurd than to deny the perpetuity of Christ's divinity. But if he will never cease to be the Son of God, but will ever remain the same that he was from the beginning, it follows that under the name of Father, the one divine essence common to both is comprehended. 
and assuredly Christ descended to us for the very purpose of raising us to the Father, and thereby, at the same time, raising us to himself, inasmuch as he is one with the Father. It is therefore erroneous and impious to confine the name of God to the Father, so as to deny it to the Son. Accordingly, John, declaring that he is the true God, has no idea of placing him beneath the Father in a subordinate rank of divinity. I wonder what these fabricators of new gods mean when they confess that Christ is truly God and yet exclude him from the Godhead of the Father, as if there could be any true God but the one God, or as if transfused divinity were not a mere modern fiction. 27. In the many passages which they collect from Irenaeus, in which he maintains that the Father of Christ is the only eternal God of Israel, they betray shameful ignorance, or very great dishonesty. For they ought to have observed that that holy man was contending against certain frantic persons, who, denying that the Father of Christ was that God who had in old times spoken by Moses and the prophets, held that he was some phantom or other produced from the pollution of the world. His whole object, therefore, is to make it plain that in the scriptures no other God is announced but the Father of Christ, that it is wicked to imagine any other. Accordingly, there is nothing strange in his so often concluding that the God of Israel was no other than he who is celebrated by Christ and the apostles. Now, when a different heresy is to be resisted, we also say with truth that the God who in old times appeared to the fathers was no other than Christ. Moreover, if it is objected that he was the Father, we have the answer ready, that while we contend for the divinity of the Son, we by no means exclude the Father. When the reader attends to the purpose of Irenaeus, the dispute is at an end. Indeed, we have only to look to Book 3, Chapter 6, where the pious writer insists on this one point, quote, that he who in Scripture is called God absolutely and indefinitely is truly the only God, and that Christ is called God absolutely, end quote. Let us remember, as appears from the whole work, and especially from Book 2, Chapter 46, that the point under discussion was that the name of Father is not applied enigmatically and parabolically to one who was not truly God. We may add that in Book 3, Chapter 9, he contends that the Son, as well as the Father, united, was the God proclaimed by the prophets and apostles. He afterwards explains how Christ, who is Lord of all, and King and Judge, received power from him who is God of all, namely, in respect of the humiliation by which he humbled himself, even to the death of the cross. At the same time, he shortly after affirms that the Son is the maker of heaven and earth, who delivered the law by the hand of Moses, and appeared to the fathers. Should any babbler now insist that, according to Irenaeus, the Father alone is the God of Israel, I will refer him to a passage in which Irenaeus distinctly says that Christ is ever one and the same, and also applies to Christ the words of the prophecy of Habakkuk, God cometh from the south. To the same effect he says, quote, Therefore Christ himself, with the Father, is the God of the living. End quote. And in the twelfth chapter of the same book, he explains that Abraham believed God because Christ is the maker of heaven and earth, and very God. 28. With no more truth do they claim Tertullian as a patron. Though his style is sometimes rugged and obscure, 
he delivers the doctrine which we maintain in no ambiguous manner, namely, that while there is one God, his word, however, is with dispensation or economy, that there is only one God in unity of substance, but that, nevertheless, by the mystery of dispensation, the unity is arranged into trinity, that there are three, not in state, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in order. He says indeed that he holds the Son to be second to the Father, but he means that the only difference is by distinction. In one place he says the Son is visible, but after he has discoursed on both views, he declares that he is invisible regarded as the Word. In fine, by affirming that the Father is characterized by his own person, he shows that he is very far from countenancing the fiction which we refute. And although he does not acknowledge any other God than the Father, yet, explaining himself in the immediate context, he shows that he does not speak exclusively in respect of the Son, because he denies that he is a different God from the Father, and, accordingly, that the one supremacy is not violated by the distinction of person and it is easy to collect his meaning from the whole tenor of his discourse. For he contends against Praxeus, that although God has three distinct persons, yet there are not several gods, nor is unity divided. According to the fiction of Praxeus, Christ could not be God without being the Father also. And this is the reason why Tertullian dwells so much on the distinction. When he calls the word and spirit a portion of the whole, the expression, though harsh, may be allowed, since it does not refer to the substance, but only, as Tertullium himself testifies, denotes arrangement and economy, which applies to the persons only. Accordingly, he asks, quote, How many persons, Praxeus, do you think there are, but just as many as there are names for? End quote. In the same way, he shortly after says, quote, that they may believe the Father and the Son, each in his own name and person. These things, I think, sufficiently refute the effrontery of those who endeavor to blind the simple by pretending the authority of Tertullian. 29. Assuredly, whosoever will compare the writings of the ancient fathers with each other will not find anything in Irenaeus different from what is taught by those who came after him. Justin is one of the most ancient, and he agrees with us out and out. Let them object that, by him and others, the Father of Christ is called the one God. The same thing is taught by Hilary, who uses the still harsher expression, that eternity is in the Father. Is it that he may withhold divine essence from the Son? His whole work is a defense of the doctrine which we maintain, and yet these men are not ashamed to produce some kind of mutilated excerpts for the purpose of persuading us that Hilary is a patron of their heresy. With regard to what they pretend as to Ignatius, if they would have it to be of the least importance, let them prove that the apostles enacted laws concerning Lent and other corruptions. Nothing can be more nauseating than the absurdities which have been published under the name of Ignatius, and therefore the conduct of those who provide themselves with such masks for deception is the less entitled to toleration. Moreover, the consent of the ancient fathers clearly appears from this, that in the Council of Nice, no attempt was made by Arius to cloak his heresy by the authority of any approved author, and no Greek or Latin writer apologizes as dissenting from his predecessors. It cannot be necessary to observe 
how carefully Augustine, to whom all these miscreants are most violently opposed, examined all ancient writings, and how reverently he embraced the doctrine taught by them. He is most scrupulous in stating the grounds on which he is forced to differ from them, even in the minutest point. On this subject, too, if he finds anything ambiguous or obscure in other writers, he does not disguise it, and he assumes it as an acknowledged fact that the doctrine opposed by the Arians was received without dispute from the earliest antiquity. At the same time, he was not ignorant of what some others had previously taught. This is obvious from a single expression. When he says that unity is in the Father, will they pretend that he then forgot himself? In another passage, he clears away every such charge, when he calls the Father the beginning of the Godhead, as being from none. Thus wisely inferring that the name of God is specially ascribed to the Father, because, unless the beginning were from him, the simple unity of essence could not be maintained. I hope the pious reader will admit that I have now disposed of all the calumnies by which Satan has hitherto attempted to pervert or obscure the pure doctrine of faith. The whole substance of the doctrine has, I trust, been faithfully expounded, if my readers will set bounds to their curiosity, and not long more eagerly than they ought, for perplexing disputation. I did not undertake to satisfy those who delight in speculate views, but I have not designedly omitted anything which I thought adverse to me. At the same time, studying the edification of the church, I have thought it better not to touch on various topics, which could have yielded little profit, while they must have needlessly burdened and fatigued the reader. For instance, what avails it to discuss, as Lombard does at length, whether or not the father always generates? This idea of continual generation becomes an absurd fiction from the moment it is seen that from eternity there were three persons in one God. End of section 22